this week's pod, we are taking you to Claridge's, but it's an invitation that comes with a warning. Don't be expecting white tablecloths, silver service, and a gentle tinkling of the piano. Different Claridge, different vibe. Ants on the plate, Ozzy Osbourne through the speakers. This is, in his own words, rock and roll dining. Let's go. This is Source Material. Yes, another episode of Source Material. And once again, it's me, Rob Jones, posing the questions. But one of the questions I'm asked fairly regularly is what it is about the whole fine dining experience that I love so much. And I reckon the answer is that, like a great film, there's a bit of escapism. Like good art, there's an appreciation of creativity. And as in good sport, there's a sense that there's no way you could ever do that yourself at home. Our next chef embodies that, I think. He starred on the Great British Menu and is the chef patron of the unique Wilderness Restaurant in Birmingham. It's a warm welcome to Alex Claridge. Hello. Hello. Thank you for having me. It's a great, great pleasure to have you. Um, and I guess we, we've spoken once, only for about five minutes before, after I'd eaten at your restaurant. But I get the sense that you are not a man who deals particularly well with boredom. So what has the last few weeks been like? How have you been keeping yourself busy? Um, I think like most people, I've had my good days and my bad days. Um, I'm quite fortunate that at least in terms of uh, the restaurant, I've managed to keep myself kind of going. Um, some of that is obviously just planning for the business, but I've been doing cookery lessons as well for some of our guests who want to kind of cook at home. So whilst that's obviously a bit of a different uh, angle to it, I've still kind of kept food at the center. Um, I've been baking a lot, which I think everybody has been doing. Um, baking for one, which is I think particularly dangerous. <laughs> you um, sit there and eat a loaf of banana bread yourself, dear? Well, an entire custard tart to be level with you. So, um, <laughs> But I have no regrets whatsoever on the the, the tart front. Um, so yeah, look, you know, it's it's an unprecedented time, and it's a time where I'd be lying if I said that it was a rosy picture for restaurants. And there's so many questions that that I don't have the answer to. But but more worryingly, people far more intelligent than me don't have the answer to either. But um, I'm trying to keep busy. I'm trying to keep optimistic, which is I think all we can do. And I'm trying to make plans that you know I hope that. As chefs, I think we always lament that we don't have time and space for consideration or for thought. And uh, the universe has, in a very twisted fashion, uh, afforded plenty of time for thought and introspection. But, um, yeah, I miss it. I miss it more than I can tell you. At, at the moment, it is it's difficult to almost get into a, into a pod without talking about the situation we're in. But actually, what I want to do is take you back to a time when, when the Prime Minister had made the decision that he hadn't officially closed restaurants and bars, but he'd made a recommendation. So there wasn't an official line. It was up to people whether they wanted to do it. And, and very quickly, you got a petition going, which having looked this morning, has got almost 350,000 signatures that that you you thought that was incredibly dangerous to the industry to, to not say something official and finite about the future of, of restaurants particularly. I, I try and stay away from uh, politics. I don't think I, I don't think I know enough to make an informed comment. I just felt it, it lacked leadership. It lacked a backbone, and I did not feel it was appropriate to be putting public safety or the safety of my team. That's not a decision that be sh- that should be made by chefs. You know, we're good at what we're good at. That's not a decision I felt comfortable making. Um, and you're right in terms of, in terms of uh, leaving us exposed discouraging people from visiting restaurants without actually providing any 
clarity, leaving us all kind of stricken just watching bookings cancel um, because of fear mongering from the government. Uh, it just felt like a very, very in-between space. And what little I know is that being stuck in limbo is never good for anybody. Um, so the petition was, um, yeah, as you say, kind of a, a kind of a gut reaction thing. Um, I couldn't believe that that was the position that they were taking at that stage. Um, sympathetic as I may be to the complexity of, you know, the challenges ahead of any government. Um, and I think that the signatures kind of spoke for themselves. I think it was uh, it was a message that needed articulating. And you know, having not had the best track record of um, using my uh, fairly big mouth to make a comment, <laughs> yeah. it, it, it felt like a somewhat better use of the platform that I'm very lucky to enjoy. So um, you know, lots of people have jumped on, and, and there's lots of people in the industry who who deserve absolute credit for their their attempts to kind of support and save. Um, we are just a very small part of that, but I like to think that the, that the petition, at least, was one of the reasons why you know by the Friday of that week, the you know the first industry to kind of have comprehensive measures introduced was hospitality, um, which, admittedly, I have to I have to be honest for anyone listening, it's turned out that was fairly PR optimized. Um, the reality of the government support versus all that was promised is quite different. Um, I don't think Rishi is quite the, the hero that we all thought he was going to be. Um, I sit here what, five weeks later, and as of yet, we have received no funding whatsoever from the government. We've received very little communication on how the funding works. I would suggest that when he said they, they need to act now, they have a very liberal understanding of what the word now might mean um, in business. But uh, yeah, it was it was a wild ride, and, and you know I felt it important that we played our part, and uh, I think in a small way we did that. And the point would be, I guess, about about funding um, that that people will obviously see you, and that they might see you on the telly, or they'll see that that Wilderness has, has won this award or that award or whatever. But I guess the grim reality is that that they don't really pay the bills, and ultimately, you, without customers, you're pretty hamstrung in terms of of propping up your business. I mean. You know, we we we've lost over six figures so far in in revenue, and that's been conservative. Um, and it's not a case of it's not a case of Corona is the only problem in this industry. This is an industry that for years has been plagued with being, you know, I believe the only country in Europe that has the same VAT rate for hospitality as all other sectors. This is an industry that felt significant volatility in the market last year with all the uncertainty politically and around Brexit. We've had years of challenge and, um, you know, this is sort of the uh, the proverbial icing on the cake. I think it's, it's it's something that we could talk about for absolutely hours and hours. But in in the the interest of injecting a little bit of positivity, a little bit of fun, let's let's talk about you and let's talk about the restaurant uh, instead, because hopefully things will become a little bit clearer and maybe a little bit easier in the coming weeks. But I want to talk. And one of the words I used in the intro about you was creativity. Can you teach that, or do you think you're born with that as a person? I think everyone has the potential. I think one of the things that I find the most exciting about restaurants and, and the hospitality generally is that there's no kind of magic uh there's no magic wand there's no inherent um right or wrong path to success in this industry this is an industry which if you work hard you will succeed um creativity can't be taught in 
the sense that technical skills can. But you know, one of the things we've always championed is if you ask the right questions, if you expose people to the right influence, if you encourage chefs to, I guess, to kind of just to, to go on their own journey, to go on their own consideration of things, but present them with, you know, present them with things they might want to think about, present them with freedom. I think that's when creativity flourishes because it's so easy in kitchens to kind of to to stick to what you know through a fear of failure or through um, a kind of a deeply held rever- rever- English hard. Don't speak to people <laughs> anymore. Forgot how to talk. Um, you know, it's very easy to be reverential around kind of the classics and, and not be willing to interrogate them. But once you get someone on the path that their question is no longer why, but the question is why not. And they realize that there aren't really any rules providing providing it tastes good and it makes someone happy the other side, that's good food. And we ought not get hung up on a prescriptive way to get there. So you mentioned the phrase there, fear of failure. Mm. I guess when you start out, you, you never have that. No, no one starts out in any career, I guess, of having that. But But the more respected you are the more successful you get does that fear of failure grow at all or do you just still think i'm going to do this for myself and what i think is right and and what what anyone else thinks it doesn't really come into it in your own mind too much i think it's an evolution i think um you know i think it's very very easy to get caught up in any success and it's very easy to once you're rolled with success through doing things one way to just kind of stick doing that you know um, but I think it's very dangerous. Um, I felt that multiple times in my career. You know, we had dishes which we did when we first opened that got a lot of coverage or, you know, a lot of comments. But one of the things we've always done is if a dish becomes too well known, we get rid of it, we never do it again. We burn it. And that's designed to protect us from overthinking this. I think. What's the, what's the, what's the, what's the best dish you've had to do that with and the toughest decision from your perspective to say, that's gone now. Well, creatively or commercially, which are two different questions, I think one of the first dishes we did was called the Ants Got to the Tart First, um, which was, uh, it was a beautifully simple piece of cookery, really. It was um, Lyonnaise onions with a set cheddar custard brulee on the top, finished with flowers and, and wood ants to bring acidity through the formic acid, which aesthetically and from a kind of purely, purely commercial perspective, it, it works beautifully. You know, we we could have supplemented that dish. We could have kept that dish going and reiterated it time and time again. But the minute journalists become too obsessed with it, um, the minute people just want to ask about one dish, that's when you have to go, nope, not really interested in that anymore, thank you. We've got a few dishes on the menu currently that I think probably need to retire, but I've got deep emotional attachment to. So they're always a challenge to, because you know, it is, I think anyone gets that, you know, it's, it's the same within music. If you create a banging first album, the pressure to do something that is better, it is significant. And typically that's when people fuck it up because the difficult the second album. Yeah. And I, in, in some ways, you know, last year I, I, you know, I was involved in a second restaurant and I did all the cliches. I did a second restaurant where I spent too much time thinking about bizarrely following traditional business acumen. I spent too much time thinking about the market and thinking about the kind of the ideal guest and thinking about who we were doing it for and you know it never really worked for us you know I ended up with a product that felt like it was too designed and too rehearsed and you know even though in many ways it shared some DNA with the wilderness it just never was um, and bizarrely I think that process has probably been the best learning I've been through because ultimately you know I chose to walk away from that business 
Um, you know, I lost significant amounts of money on said business. I had to go through the pain of, you know, publicly having a failure, really. Um, but what's quite nice is you, you sort of get to a, this this bizarre this bizarre nihilistic piece where you don't really give a fuck anymore about anything and you kind of just create because it's what you need to do because it's it comes out of you as a involuntary thing you know the best ideas i think we have in this business are not ones which are built because we sit down clap our hands and go let's be creative it's the conversations that we have mid-service you know with with the rest of the lads in the kitchen um you know my current head chef marius all the best ideas we have are unrehearsed they're not postured um and i think i've whilst my gut does sometimes make some spectacularly poor choices i still feel like we are at, we are at our best when we to a point put blinkers up you know i don't spend a great deal of time focusing on what other people are doing um i don't take a great deal of inspiration from other chefs i'm not particularly interested in in that um, I'd rather avoid it because I don't want those ideas to get in my head and pollute, pollute kind of you know the creative thoughts that might otherwise just you know meander around and occasionally turn into something worthwhile. But I think creativity, it has to sort of exist a little bit on an island. You know, you need to lead a life that inspires you, and you need to lead a life rich with experience to do so. But I think you can sort of just let it sit. If it doesn't come out of you like a fire, if it doesn't come out of you with a kind of a, a raw, red-hot passion where you go, fuck, man, I need to do this thing, or I really want to do this thing, or I really want to eat this thing, I don't really want to do it. Um, there's a self-destructive element to that as well, but everyone's different, but that, that's certainly how, how I work. It has to be all or nothing, really, with me, um, which plays out in a variety of ways, but I think it's what's always kept our our business evolving, what's always kept us, you know, I suppose seeking really, there's a constant search for better dishes or dishes that, that somehow speak more of of this restaurant. And I don't think we'll ever get there, you know, depressing thought, don't think we'll ever get there, I think we'll only ever circle it, but I'd much rather that than us kind of do a menu that gets a pretty good reception and then not change it. That to me feels like stagnation and uh, stagnation is, is not something which I'm interested in, in entertaining. Uh, now, you mentioned that with dishes that you, you take them off because, you know, too many journalists ask the question about them or they become almost a monster of, of the menu in, in a way. Guess which one I'm going to ask you about. <laughs> if it's about the ants, then I'm hanging up. It's definitely not. It's, no, it's not about the ants. It's not about the ants. It's, a, it's the homage to a very famous hamburger. We've talked and we sort of touched on that creative path. How do you get to the point where you think, I want to try a twist on a Big Mac and stick it on my menu? I mean, I think it's just art imitating life. Um, you know, the Big Mac came about, it was one of the first dishes that um, when Stu Dealey was with me as head chef that we did together, um, you know, and we ate a lot of junk food in this kitchen. You know, <laughs> when, when, when certainly when Stu first joined, we did not have enough staff. So in lieu of enough staff, it was just a hell of a lot of um, graft. It was a, a lot of time spent in a small space with a, a very small team. And um, that's thing which we always kind of ate. And we discussed the idea and, um, you know, Stu kind of brought together, you know, the, the elements for it. And, and we kind of sat and discussed it. And yeah, I mean, that, that dish is one of the ones which we... we we frequently have a turmoil over whether it should retire. Um, 
I think as it is served currently, I think it is done. It will not be back on our menu as it's been served before. I'm quite interested in maintaining a dish that still has the overall emotional experience of it. Just because for me, it felt like a very rebellious dish for, you know, call it imposter syndrome, but as someone who didn't grow up eating particularly nice food or particularly well, that's no disparagement. Like, you know, I was fed. Uh, just <laughs> good, you know. My my my, uh, my mum went to Iceland and and then some, really. So you know, I think I felt that level of kind of fraud over not perhaps coming from pedigree, if you will, not having kind of eaten all these kind of uh, traditionally French luxury dishes. So to open a tasting menu with a dish that is based on the world's most universal junk food it, it kind of feels like an appropriate statement as to what we wish to say um, but if it does come back post corona it will come back different um, significantly so in terms of, of making your own way then and, and, and getting the identity for your for your restaurant that you wanted which you you call it rock and roll dining but is that almost a little bit easier given the upbringing that you've had and the fact that you know you're not used as you said to eating sort of french foods when you grow up that actually your experiences the the more the more direct and obvious route is to go down a route which is away from what so many other restaurants do. Um, I mean, as a minor point, we only call it rock and roll fine dining because when we first opened, we had so many people come in and complain about the music that we felt we needed to make it blatant. And I've always been interested in what food can say. I've always been interested in kind of um, the idea of terroir in terms of how can you capture the time and place you are from in a menu and although we are a less obvious example of it because I don't think we you know we don't do dishes that are abundant with locally foraged tiny leaves and and kind of a lot of the the new Nordic um, tropes I guess that's all we're trying to do really we're trying to capture a sense of what's Birmingham mean to to me what's my view of the city Um, how do we as a team interpret Birmingham's kind of culinary lineage and I think like the, the music side is as simple as I spend too much time here, mate, and I don't want to listen to stuff that I don't enjoy. Um, and, you know, yes, the restaurant is probably a little bit darker um, in palette than the many, but that's just my personal taste, man. Like, you know, goth for life. I listened to far too much um, very sad music when I was growing up and it, it left a lasting impression. So I think one of the really important things when you have your own restaurant is to firstly accept that no restaurant is just you. Um, one of the things that I think, you know, and I'm sure we'll come back to it, like I cannot overstate that I could not do this without my team. Um, and I've been lucky to have some really great head chefs over the last couple of years who've really helped us push forward. Um, so this isn't a this isn't a vanity project that's just me. But in terms of the overall policing of how does it look, you know, what's the overall vision for it, you know, how do you feel whilst you're here? Yeah, you know, I, I guess the reason I found it easier is for the wilderness. It's basically just me. It's just, what do I like? And then I do it. Um, And I think that was our fall down really when I did a second venue that at that point I wasn't focusing on just doing things that didn't require consideration. Like if you ask me what's right for the wilderness, well, it's very easy because you're just asking what's right for me, really. The choices I make here are just, this is my personal taste, but put into a venue. when you stray from that formula, it becomes a lot harder because that's when you need to have big round table discussions around demographics and customer behavior and things that just, I think they sully the mind, um, useful as they may be. But, you know, here's not even a conscious, oh, you know, let's let's go down this niche or let's do that. 
Um, it has worked for us that way, don't get me wrong, it's made us visibly different in feel, but I just wanted to have a little restaurant that I really, really fucking loved and that, you know, had as many things that I like in one place. And that's kind of all we did. And as it's evolved from there, it, it's kind of, you know, it's had its times where there's been tension points in that, um, but it's evolved into something that I think feels cohesive as a brand. Um, but that's taken time to get to. Final point then, or final little challenge it is in terms of, of talking about creativity and, and you and, and what you like, which is what the restaurant is. Obviously, you're big into music. I know you tried music before you, you really chucked yourself into cooking, but obviously most places now you have a wine pairing with your dishes. But I want, I want you to give me a music pairing as well. So I've got three of your dishes. What song would you play alongside this, which you think complements the dish? So a sag donut. What's the song that comes to mind there? Oh, Prince, man. All day long, Prince. Yeah? Um, yeah, Prince. Do you know what? Prince Get Off. Like, you know, it's got a little exotic to it. It's got, like, you know, a little sexy to it. It's explosive. You know, I went through, interestingly enough, I genuinely spent an hour with um, uh, Barrett, who's my kind of my, my head chocolatier and, and supports on pastry with us here. Um, I made him listen to that from the intro to that song for an hour um, and made him write down for an hour the flavours that he thought best suited that song and I still don't know if he's forgiven me for it and I still don't know like, whether he's okay. I still don't know that he's okay it's a very but, strange um, form of torture that but that's creativity because that's not you know I wish someone had sat me down when I was on my way up in kitchens and made me listen to you know maybe, maybe listen to Prince and said well what's this flavour but, you know, I think it's inextricable for me, though, because I see flavour as, as sound. So, like, if I eat something, I hear it as notes. Um, there is a name for it. I believe it is synthonism. I can't say it, and I can't really spell it. But We'll look it up. Something. We'll look it up. Yeah, there's a thing. So I, I kind of... <coughs> You've set me a very easy challenge, because that's sort of the way this works anyway. Okay, well, well, we'll go to the next one then, which is not on your menu at the moment, but was not another Balti, which is a quail dish based roughly on a Balti. What song are you going for for that? Punjabi MC, mate. Full cliche, strong. white boy. So yeah. I was going to say, it was very strong and obvious. And we'll finish with the Grand Mac then, just as a, an easy one. I'm sure you've got an answer for that as well. Um, do you know what? That's the hardest one, I, I reckon. I genuinely think that's the hardest one to put music with. Because um, we've... We, Again, we've played with that. You know, we're, we're in the process at the moment of doing some really interesting experiments with music and, and kind of wine, bizarrely enough. Um, but it's such a universal kind of dish. Like, the whole point is that's meant to be a, a kind of crowd pleaser. Um, my go-to is Bowie, but I think it's just a really fancy listening to David Bowie right now. So... Okay. I, I, I'm going to I'm going to take a pass on it, even though I don't know if I've got a pass. Well, no, we'll come up with something. By the end of the podcast, I'm going to ask you again as the last question. I want, to, want you to have okay, thoughts. Okay. Um, next up, we're going to chat about being accepted. You're listening to Source Material, available from all major podcast providers. To get in touch, use the hashtag Source Material on social media. My question would be, how much do the opinions of others, whether it's critics, whether it's customers... How much does that matter to you? Customers, yes, because without them there is no business. 
and you know we are in the business of making people happy hospitality it's very easy to over egg it and overstate it but your job is to make people happy with food and drink that's it it's not rocket science so customer opinion yes um everybody else take it or leave it for the most part like i, I I'm, I'm human you know i am human and if i've got a bad review would it hit me yeah would it upset me yeah it probably would but as i think you're kind of getting at in terms of do i seek my happiness and my validation in others i do not i do not believe that any human being can seek their happiness or their self-worth through the opinion of anybody but themselves um and i'm a big believer in that and i definitely wouldn't change a thing i do just because one person doesn't like it or indeed doesn't like me as is you know sometimes the case um things hit differently sometimes like no one likes to hear i don't think anyone takes any joy in hearing a negative evaluation of something they have done or something of their character but you know i think i've come on a long way over the last couple of years i think when i first started this massively you know i remember waiting for the first guardian review we had um and i remember like genuinely like thinking oh my god i'm going to die of nerves um, <laughs> it was pretty good you know. though i think i read it last night so it, it, was, it, was, it was a lovely review, actually. It was a really, really lovely tip of the hat to, to I think, the formative ideas of this restaurant. But um, I think the important thing is, 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 is to have the ability to take into account every opinion, to listen. Like you, you must listen as a chef. I don't think it's right to just dismiss anything. But to have enough confidence in what you do and what your intent is that if you were happy with it, like, you know, if we, if we serve a menu and, you know, I'm happy with it and my head chef is happy with it. I think it's having the courage to accept that, you know, there's no singular opinion that's right or wrong. Food is inherently Marmite. That is one of the things that make it a creative discipline as opposed to pure science. And whilst it might cause short-term displeasure on a grand scheme of things, nothing really matters. We're all hurtling towards death. Um, whether or not someone who can afford to eat at my restaurant found a particular 35 gram piece of fish to their taste or not i just feel like if this current circumstance isn't a pretty good indication that there are bigger fish to fry if you'll excuse the pun <laughs> you know um, but to, to talk about customers then there was a, there was a time when you went on to TripAdvisor and, and you mm. sort of re responded to, to customers but from from looking at that, the sense I got that that wasn't that you were annoyed that people had criticised. It was almost that you were annoyed that people didn't think about where they were going before they went and, and that they were almost going expecting white tablecloths and, you know, tinkling ivories and yeah. was, was almost a bit surprised when they got there. Well, do you know what? I think there's, there's two points to make. The first one is that I was an arsehole. Um, you know, I was, I was young and I was immature and, um, when you run a restaurant, there are a lot of frustrations and there are a lot of things that make you very angry and you can feel very hard done by in that. And I think at times I, I lacked the self-discipline to know when to indulge that. Um, I think... I think I've, I've realized since that life is a bit more complicated than that. And actually if someone, if someone kind of didn't like what we did, there's a million one things that might have influenced that. And it's, it's not right to be cavalier in your response. 
um, I've learned the value of gratitude. So there's always at least a nugget of value in what someone gives you. So if they give you feedback that's horrific, even if it's just a small part there that will make me better one day, like I, I try and focus on giving thanks for that as opposed to jumping to the defense. But, but secondly, and you know, I've talked about this a little bit before, there is a toxic tendency within, um, I guess, culturally, that everyone wants chefs to be pricks. Everyone finds it very entertaining. Um, you know, like Ramsay being a really good example from what I know, Gordon Ramsay is actually a really, really stand-up decent bloke, but he's done very, very well by becoming a pastiche of uh, this particular version. And I posted a response where I was sarky and I kind of said lots of smart-ass things. And, you know, the business did quite well off that in the short term. You know, it used to get a lot of attention for us. It used to kind of, bizarrely, in people's willingness to kind of go, oh, this is brilliant. Have you read how funny his response is? Or have you seen how much of an arsehole he is? In that validation, it delayed my own kind of growth and my own journey. Just to um, just to carry on with, with the, the concept then of, of being judged. What is it about going on a show like The Great British Many that appeals to you <laughs> if if being endorsed by people is not something that really matters I believe that life is for living and I seek a richness of experience in all that I do I hadn't done that before curiosity if you will I felt like it would be an interesting addition to to life and I'm not gonna lie you know it, it most decisions I make now are for my business you know, it gives me a platform to hopefully introduce a few more people to what we do. Um, I mean, this year was a this year was a particularly. It wasn't the circumstances in which I'd have liked to have gone on the show. Um, I think you know I've got nothing but love and respect for the entire team who work on that show. They were fantastic. They really were. Um, Paul Ainsworth, absolute gent, um, and I very much enjoyed parts of my time there, but. Um, you know, this year I ultimately did it because I like to compete properly. This year coming, um, you know, it became apparent to me a couple of weeks before we were filming that there was absolutely no way I was really ready or able to do the show. Um, you know, I was in the middle of uh, liquidating a business, which is a very intensive process. Um, Stuart had been filming for MasterChef, so he'd been uh, out of the kitchen for most of the the months preceding it. Um, so I had no time to practice the first dish, which I did the 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 kind of riff on um, on on a bolty. Uh, I made that up on the morning. Um, I didn't really have a clue what I was doing. Uh, the scallop dish I'd done once before. All my props were delayed, like they were delayed at customs. It happens. Um, so I kind of went into this year kind of with a sad resignation that there was no way it was going to go how I wanted it, and it wasn't really a reflection of what I'd have done um, but the producers were very kind and supportive and they, they kind of said look you know you can either compete um, do your absolute best we appreciate what you're saying that you know everyone's got stuff going on do you know what I mean like I, I'm not making excuses for it I didn't prepare so I didn't do as well as I wanted to it's a very straightforward thing um, but the other option would have been to pull out which I could have done but it would have it would have really left them in the lurch and you know, it would have disrupted them and the likelihood of them having me back again, minimal. So, you know, I kind of thought, look, let's just let's just go and you know try and enjoy this process as much as possible, um, which I did. And I learned a great deal from it. But um, no, the a few years ago, I'd have done it for ego. Not going to lie, I would have done. Um, 
I've little interest in that really. I, I did it for my business. I did it because I want to make sure that my business succeeds as well as it can. Um, as to how well I did on that particular count this year, I, I don't know, man. You know, I feel like it was it was a little flavour of kind of how I look at food, but um, you know, I, I very much hope that they will have me back next year so I can kind of you know prepare. <laughs> <laughs> well, yeah, practicing, practicing would probably give you a little bit of an advantage, or I could rather. I feel, just keep I feel, I feel like, yeah, I feel, I feel like coming up with a dish on the fly for a show of that caliber. It feels <laughs> a little foolhardy. Um, yeah, possibly, possibly, yeah. but you know, I mean, everyone has extenuating circumstances. Oh yeah, but there's always then, mate. Like life's not easy, is it? Um, I remember like the, the the day when I finished filming, and I knew that I wasn't going any further. Like that hurt though. Like that was rough. That was, um, yeah, I'm not going to forget that in a hurry. So I hope that is a good cautionary tale for me to make sure that um, if I'm fortunate enough to be afforded that opportunity again, I, um, you know, I perhaps give it a bit more love. And on the subject of those sorts of shows, and, and you mentioned him a couple of times, your former head chef, Stu Dealey, who won MasterChef this year or last year as it would be now. Um, does that... For you, count as a little bit of a tip of the cap that, that you obviously you're doing something right in in your role that you've got or helped or guided a guy to that position to win a, a competition like that. Um, not massively, no. Um, I think it would be very disingenuous of me to take uh, for him or indeed Louisa Ellis, who who was I think third place um, a couple of years before that, and she was working with me as well. Um, these chefs are incredibly self-motivated. You know, they they make the decision to go on MasterChef. Um, we just do our best to try and support them through it. You know, I think there's practical ways you can support them, which we've always been very keen to, to do. Um, and, and, and I think for Stu, you know, Stu's an incredible talent and his success on MasterChef is a reflection of that. And I think, you know, the freedom to the freedom to kind of explore and the confidence which which he gained in, in being a head chef here um, and perhaps the exposure to sort of more multicultural ingredients and, and sort of slightly more um, I guess non-traditional ways of looking at food like I, I'm sure that his style would be different if he hadn't been with the wilderness um, but I, I didn't do the filming I didn't have to pretend that Greg Wallace is funny I didn't do the hard work you know what I mean like <laughs> They, 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 they do all the hard work and their victory is theirs and um, we've always been very clear on that um, I'm not I'm not in this gig to try and steal the glory just try and be a decent human like what do you need some time off okay need some ingredients yeah that's fine just order them I'll pay for it um, you know and, and all chefs are a product of everywhere they've worked so you know Stu's success is a product of you know being with the wilderness but it's also been at Simpsons and you know Mallory years ago and, and you know everything he's done so you know credit where credit's due um, we are just you know we're just sort of like the, the mum on the background running with a bag of sandwiches and a packet of crisps <laughs> and kind of going oh good luck sweetie you know that's that's about as much as as, as, as we do but um, I think clearly we're doing something right in terms of building confidence in chefs and encouraging them to dream big and encouraging them to to be creative. Um, two out of three years for finalists isn't a bad tally for a restaurant, but, you know, I would caution, and we have done, you know, you, know, you have kind of guests who 
who then book a table because they believe in some way that this is a conduit towards MasterChef, that if you sit on table four and click your feet, you'll actually be in the studio or, you know, uh, Marcus will burst out the cupboards. Like, it's, it's nothing intrinsic, just, you know, we attract really talented people, we seek them out, we try and make them more confident and more talented. And, you know, I think it's pretty straightforward then. If you're surrounded by really incredible people, which I'm lucky to be, you know, I've got the best team here and, you know, I've had some fantastic people through the doors. They're going to go and do awesome things. That's why we want them in the first place, because we saw their potential. Um, and I'm just very, I don't know, I feel very fortunate that that I'm able to, to kind of see their potential and, you know, show them a bit of love, really. It's all anyone needs. Well, time is racing away with us. Um, we've still got a little bit more to squeeze in. We've still got time for this, at least. The Burning Issues. And those terrible sound effects tell you it is time for the burning questions. Uh, we give these to all of our chefs, to all of our guests on Source Material. So Alex is going to to rattle through a few questions just before we let him go. Um, so first question to ask you, ultimate three-course meal you've got, Alex? Uh, chicken liver parfait to start. And I'm not talking like an elegant little roche of it. I just want the tub. Uh, don't, <laughs> keep, don't keep me away from it. Uh... I would have Galician steak, probably a T-bone. Uh, nothing else really, just loads and loads of steak. And dessert? Um, so I'm not a massive sweet person to be honest, so I'd rather just have for dessert, I'd rather just have like a really nice little kind of petty four set. Um, not, not crazy about sweet stuff. So yeah, just, just give me some elegant little chocolates so I can sort of just devour them whilst I I sip on like an old-fashioned and I'm good with that. Would you prefer them to be in the shape of a skull or you, you easy whichever whichever form they come in? I mean, unless it's unless it's us making them, I'd definitely rather than not in the shape of a skull because uh, <laughs> otherwise someone's, someone's jumped on it. Um, but no, when it comes to how I like to be outside of work, I just want it to be really simple, really simple and really tasty. Um, for me, like... I think I eat very simply when I'm not in work. Right then, ultimate chef's table. You've got four spaces. You can only have one chef. If you want them, you probably don't. I imagine you're not the type of person that would need one there. Four people, alive or dead, that you want to have at your chef's table that you're cooking dinner for and, uh, and spending a night with. I mean, spending the night with just makes it feel a little bit more sexy than I thought you were going to. <laughs> um, are we all going to a night dinner party or an orgy? Uh, dinner, um, I think we'll go dinner party. Okay. Um, well, my answers are all changing. Uh, I don't have a I'll be honest, I don't have a fucking clue. I get asked this all the time. I don't really like dinner parties. Uh, I don't dine in groups. I, I dine as a two. I don't like eating out with more than two people. Um, I appreciate this ruins the nature of your quick-fire quiz. Ever so slightly, yeah, but yes, we'll let you off. I mean, if there's a chef I'd have at a dinner party, I'd have Gareth Ward, because... I'm hoping that he'd bring snacks and like, you know, pound for pound food wise, like that man's like a wizard. Um, you know, I can't tell you how much love I have for his cooking and how much, and how regularly I think, I fancy 24 course menu with Gareth right now. It happens <laughs> a lot. Um, so he'd be there, but I think everyone else wouldn't be like, oh, you know, oh, I'd have Einstein and you know, it wouldn't be that. I, I just I just have my loved ones around me because I don't get enough time to, 
to see them at the best of times. So if the only way to see them is to force them into some sort of weird dinner party <laughs> of your creation, then, um, you know, so be it. So to answer my brilliantly crafted question, you're going just you and Gareth Ward in a 24-course tear-up? Basically, yeah. Great. We'll take that. I don't mind that at all. Uh, next one we're going for is, is kitchen nightmares. Any really bad moments in the kitchen or any dishes that you've tried? And I imagine it's a bit of a, a creative and an inventor that you've sort of got there yeah, and, and tasted it and thought, that's there's, not there's, great. There's, there's plenty. Um, I mean, purely on nightmare, like a couple of years ago when I'd just taken on the Joy Quarter premises we're in now, we did New Year's Eve. Um, so obviously a lot of responsibility to look after someone's New Year's Eve. And uh, the electrics failed, blew out five minutes before we started. No uh, idea. The oven, the oven broke and then the boiler went down and it started snowing and the snow started coming through the roof. And it was, it was I think, the worst service of my life. Like in the end, I, um, I think I either refunded or offered uh, a totally new meal for every single guest. It was just an ordeal. Like, you know, going, I've got like two working hobs to cook on no oven all the heating's gone off and like in some sort of bizarre stylized apocalyptic warning the weather has entered the building it's tough to beat it's tough to beat that um experimentation wise yeah yeah i do but i think you should really embrace it you should fail often just don't do it on your menu Um, we spent quite a lot of money and quite a lot of time earlier um i think late last year actually trying to make a caviar and white chocolate skull um which actually kind of led a little bit to some of the flavours that did work for the scallop dish I did on, on, on Great British Menu. Um, that didn't work. When I was younger, I tried to make an aubergine lemonade. And let me tell you now, for anyone sitting at home thinking, I want to make an aubergine lemonade, <laughs> don't, bother, don't bother. It's yeah, um, a waste of time. There's, there's no merit to it. It will just taste like <laughs> someone's, someone's dropped soda water on a, on a fag tray. Delicious. Uh, right then, last, t- last question. And, and this is a good one. Uh, it's a piece of advice for home cooks, which isn't don't make an aubergine lemonade, but a little piece of advice that is maybe a little bit chefy. It may it'll make a big difference to stuff you cook at home, but and it might even seem a little bit obvious in the trade. But a small piece of advice that makes a big bit of difference. Weigh everything out before you start. I know it sounds silly, but you know when I've been doing a lot of these these kind of these cookery lessons on on Zoom and and, and whatnot for guests. The biggest difference that I've learned is the first one I did, we literally went into it fresh and it was painful. It was painful watching, um, you know, watching my kind of, you know, my victim, victim, I don't know, wrong word. (laughs) Possibly the wrong word. Protégé. Yeah, my my protégé having to weigh out everything. And, you know, if if you're there kind of reading for a recipe and then you go, oh, I need some sugar. And then you have to go to the cupboard, you get the sugar out and you get that. And like, you know, weigh everything out, clean everything away. So you're working really clean. You've not got clutter all over the place. Because then actually you'll enjoy cooking so much more. You know, like for a lot of the cookery lessons we've been doing, you know, I do a miso creme brulee as the kind of dessert. And I kind of say to them, if you weigh all the ingredients for this, it's a brulee. It's not a complicated thing. You know, we can have your dessert on the go within 10 minutes put your timer on you're done like that's that you know and if you're cooking at home i just think the most important thing you have to watch is cooking at home should be about enjoying the company of the people you're cooking for it really should and that's about minimizing the amount of time you're having an existential crisis in the kitchen so you know our job is to streamline it if you take that little bit of time to kind of don't worry about cooking just worry about a pair of scales and 
weighing things out into some tubs and then keeping all your ingredients for each thing together you know because that that's 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 how we do it in the kitchen so it streamlines the whole process it means that you're you know you're not spending four hours pissing around in the back of a cupboard trying to find a spice um <laughs> so i mean super basic stuff but you know i found genuinely that that's not intrinsically how as a country we cook at home um so i i, I thoroughly recommend it all right well the last one then because i haven't forgotten about it we still need that song to go with your grand mac Okay, rock DJ Robbie Williams. There we go. Strong. That's a terrible See, there answer. You go. No, I like that because it's 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 down the middle. It's popular culture, just like a Big Mac. So I reckon it, that, I was going to suggest Britney hit me, baby, one more time. But I see, think see, my, my 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 image for that is um, there's a kind of the there's a Banksy esque kind of dismal land to to my mindset whenever I create the Big Mac, and I just think like what could be like the saddest, almost dour inspiration for a dish, and I feel like you know me sat like at two a.m in a mcdonald's eating a big mac with like the cleaner in the background you know a couple of assorted sort of you know drunk people just there vomiting in the floor <laughs> and then rock dj on the stereo i feel like that's that's sufficiently dismal and maybe in wilderness you could serve it in your pants like robbie williams had on that episode in in the video for rock dj maybe some tiny due, pants that might work <laughs> due to instances that we cannot talk about for legal reasons i will not be serving anything in my pants <laughs> be that me wearing them or literally inside of them neither option is appealing <laughs> That is a charming place to finish. Alex, it's been an absolute pleasure. Thanks so much. Thank for you so much for having us. me, buddy. Cheers. Source material back next week. We'll see you soon.